The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. Wonderful to be with all of you here on this Lord's Day morning. It's certainly always a joy together with those of like precious faith and worship our God. And we're thankful we have power this morning. You know that storm that kind of blew through, knocked some power out in some towns, and I don't know if it went out here, but at least it's on now. And so we're thankful for that, thankful for modern technology and what we've been blessed with to be gathered in this building that is not humid, but it is cool and we have light. It's always a blessing. And it's especially a blessing to be able to think about and worship God about the spiritual blessings we have and enjoy through his son. We've got a lot of our number that aren't missing. We know where most of them are, but they're not here. So it's certainly good to see some who are visiting with us. We want you to know you're an honored guest, and we know you might be traveling and going through and, and not here very often, but whenever you're in the area, we want to extend the invitation for you to be with us. We certainly appreciate that and are encouraged by your presence, and we've been edified by your participation in worship. We hope that it's been beneficial to you as well, and it's my prayer that the sermon for this morning will continue in that edification as we look to God's wisdom. In Proverbs 22 and verse 28, Solomon, by inspiration of the Spirit, imparts some wisdom to us, as he does throughout the book of Proverbs. And he says in Proverbs 22:28, Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. This is a principle that is certainly seen in the Old Testament several times, and it has a specific meaning in this passage, but it also has a figurative application to be made, and that's really what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at another aspect of application this evening. You can listen to both sermons without having to have heard the first one, but I would encourage you to be back again this evening as we look to some other applications. It says, do not move the ancient landmark. It is a landmark that is ultimately defining a boundary, a border, if you will, a line, ultimately separating properties from one another. And what it did, especially during that time where there wasn't as as defined maps, if you will, or, or even actual walls that were built up with the children of Israel and their land everywhere they went, it allowed for a a objectivity with regard to whose land was whose. And it was often either a stone that was set up or a pile of stones like you see in the picture often had inscriptions on it to show whose land this was, whose border this was. And those were there so that they can be honored and, and recognized. But there were some times when individuals, out of greediness, covetousness, whatever it may be, they picked those up and they moved them to give themselves more land or to take more land away from another Wisdom tells us don't remove those ancient landmarks. In Deuteronomy 19, in verse 14, in the recitation of the law, Moses said in Deuteronomy 19, 14, you shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. The children of Israel were promised land. We remember that in Genesis 12, the land nation seed promise, and they were given that land. And as the generations passed and the posterity 
arrived, those lands, they fluctuated. Some got more land, some had land taken away from them, whatever it may be. But there were always landmarks or boundary lines that were set up, especially for those who would be taking the inheritance from their forefathers. And those were their rights. Those were their blessings. And God's saying, don't remove those. Don't be dishonest and move those back or move those forward because you're taking away from these people what God gave them. And that's not right. It's theft. And it ultimately does not exhibit the character that God's people were to possess. In Deuteronomy 27, in verse 17, the serious nature of this is shown. Deuteronomy 27, 17 says, Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. To move a neighbor's landmark was to be cursed. It was ultimately a transgression of the law. It was sin. It was showing yourself to not love your neighbor as yourself. It was completely contrary to the character of a child of God. In Proverbs 23 and verse 10, wisdom tells us not to remove the ancient landmark again, neither the fields of the fatherless, and the reason is given, for their Redeemer is mighty. He will plead their cause against you. Also in Proverbs 15 and verse 25, God said, The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. In those two Proverbs, the widows and the fatherless are mentioned. Those were individuals who didn't have a protector or a provider, and they were often taken advantage of by those who were wicked. And one of the ways they were taken advantage of is moving that ancient landmark, moving the boundary line, showing that they wanted to take that land and using their force to take advantage of those who are less fortunate. But God said, I'm the avenger of such. God's going to defend them. God's going to pour out wrath on those who move those landmarks. And so certainly the specific application in those contexts doesn't apply to us today necessarily within the national law of Israel, although we ought not to move the landmarks that are on our own land or someone else's land. That's theft and that's covetousness. But there's a spiritual principle to be seen here. Hosea chapter 5 and in verse 10, the Lord uses this idea of removing a landmark in a figurative and spiritual way. Hosea 5 and verse 10 He says that the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. He says, I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. Also in this passage before in verse 7, it says that they had dealt treacherously with the Lord. They had begotten pagan Children, he's speaking about idolatry and intermarrying with idolaters and bearing pagan children. He's speaking about the period of Israel's history, which is a large period of history, where they had turned from God to idols in the land of Canaan, contrary to what God had commanded. And in that, they were heeding their evil kings and walking after the precepts of men, like he accuses Ephraim of there in that passage. And he likened this to those who moved the ancient landmarks. You see, when God devised the law, he was setting landmarks. Obviously, he set some specific landmarks. We see that when they went and conquered Canaan land, and those lands were portioned out to the children of Israel, and they had different bodies of water and and actual land formations that served as landmarks, and then within those tribes, even more landmarks are established. But he's talking about his law. 
He's saying, I've set up these boundaries, these borders, these walls, if you will, of a spiritual nature and said, this is how far you can go. This is my law and you should not transgress it. That is, go beyond the border. And Judah, as they turned to idolatry and turned to precepts of men, were like those who moved the physical landmarks. This is what God has given me in my land, but I want more. And so I'm going to move it further. And in doing so, I'm taking away from the land of another. And that's exactly what the children of Judah were doing when they failed to submit to God's law. They were covetous. They wanted more than what God had allotted them. But also, as they moved that landmark and gave themselves more room beyond God's law, they took away from God's law and took away from his property. We need to understand that we know God created all things, but we need to grasp that even more so on a spiritual level. All things are God's. And we approach them as we're governed by God's will with that in mind, that this is not about us. God does care how we worship. God does care how we live. God does care how we act because everything is his and we're mere stewards of it. And so when God makes a law, he's setting up a landmark and we had better not move it. Remember Deuteronomy twenty-seven seventeen: The one who moves a landmark is cursed. This is really what the prophets were sent to beckon the people back to in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We remember the words of Jeremiah in Jeremiah six sixteen. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. We could say ancient landmarks where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. He's saying there were directions and there were commandments and there is a law. There was a way Israel used to walk in their faithful periods of time. And you need to go back to that. You need to return to those old paths. We remember very vividly, I think, when Josiah, that young king, took the throne and he repaired the temple, repaired the, the house of the Lord, and they found the book of the law. They found the old paths. And he tore his clothes in sorrow because they weren't walking anywhere close to the old paths. And he called the children of Israel to return to the old paths that were marked out and and mapped out in God's word. And this is what Jeremiah is calling the people to in Jeremiah 6 and verse 16. Return to the old paths, but they said we will not walk in it. That's the problem. We're not content with the spiritual land, if you will, that God has given us. We want more. And so we're going to move those landmarks. God says, don't do it. You're cursed if you do it. We need to acknowledge the boundaries that God has set in Scripture. The application I want to look at this morning that will differ from the application this evening is those ancient landmarks that are found in the church. There are borders that God has set. In fact, the church is a kingdom and kingdoms have borders. That is a topic of discussion that has been going on in our own uh, country for some time now, this discussion of why borders are necessary, why those defining lines are necessary, because really a, a country or a kingdom without borders is really undefined and not a kingdom or a country at all. And we're not getting into politics and whether a wall is needed or not, but this is how God describes his church. He describes it as a kingdom. And we certainly know that kingdoms have borders. We remember back in Ezra and Nehemiah how the remnant returned to Judah and returned to Jerusalem to build the wall and to rebuild the temple. And they were building those walls and defending the enemies or defending themselves from the enemies while they were doing it. Walls are important and God sets them up for a purpose. In Matthew chapter 16, in the life of Jesus, we reach the point in time where Jesus is ultimately and verbally 
shown to be who he is by his very apostles. Remember, the question was asked, who do men say that I am, and or who do you say that I am? He said, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some Jeremiah. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter made this great confession in Matthew 16, 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And listen to Jesus' response. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail or shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I want us to notice, first of all, that in verse 18, he said, I will build my church. And in verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. There are those who want to make a distinction between the church and the kingdom when in reality, they're the exact same thing. It's like a person who is a father and a brother and a son. They may be the same person. Those are different descriptions of the same person. Church and kingdom are different descriptions of the same institution set up by Jesus. I want us to notice first and foremost, though, that in verse 17, he shows that this very confession, this very truth that Peter espoused was revealed by God. These boundaries in the church are all revealed by God. The fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, is revealed by God. No one can take that away. There have even been those of the brotherhood who have tried to say that he is either all God or all man, but he can't be both at the same time when the Scriptures plainly and clearly say that he is. And when they take away his divinity, they're moving the ancient landmark. And when they move the ancient landmark, they're cursed. You can't have salvation with only Jesus' divinity or with only Jesus' humanity. He is the theanthropic person. He is both God and man. Even this truth that you are the Christ, the Son of God, is revealed. And on that foundation is what Jesus says he's going to build his church upon. Notice verse 19. He's going to give apostles, Peter and the rest of the apostles, the keys of the kingdom. That implies figuratively that there's a gate. There are walls and you can get in, but you've got to have the key just like we have to have the key to get into our house. And those keys are given to the apostles. It's worded this way regarding this idea that Jesus is showing. In John 20 and verse 22, when he said this to them, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He's talking to the apostles and he said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That is, if you forgive someone of their sins, they gain entrance into the kingdom. Those are your keys. You have been given the ability to let people in the kingdom. But it's predicated upon the Holy Spirit's instruction. He gave them the Holy Spirit. He said, now since you have that direction, you're inspired, what you say is going to let people into the kingdom or it's going to keep them out. And it's based upon God's law. And that's what he says there. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. The New American Standard Bible translates it a little better and gives us the meaning a little more literally. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. He's saying the borders are already set. You're just the instrument of God's communication of those borders. You're drawing the map, if you will. You're showing the boundary lines. And that's how you gain entrance, or that's how you're kept out. In Ephesians, the second chapter in verse 20, it shows that the apostolic doctrine and the doctrine of Christ are what the church is built upon. 
that those people having become Christians were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And First John, the first chapter in verse 3, that's what the apostle John is talking about when he says that word of, of life was manifested to us. We felt him, we handled him, we heard him, and we're taking what he told us and we're declaring it to you, he says, that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And that's the context of Second John in verse 9 when he says this, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. He's basically saying, the only one who has fellowship with God, therefore has salvation, is the one who stays within those boundary lines. They don't move the ancient landmarks. God has given us his decree, and the one who has fellowship with God is the one who respects those ancient landmarks. The church is certainly a kingdom and has borders, ancient landmarks that must be respected. And there are some fundamental landmarks that I want to consider. I want us to understand that the interpretation of what God has revealed to us to walk by in and of itself, certainly the law of God has revealed is a landmark, but the very way of interpreting that law is its own landmark. And we better not move it. And it saddens me to say that not only have those in the denominations and in the world moved those landmarks to wherever they please themselves so that they can make their own doctrines and have their own churches established contrary to what God's will was, there are even those in the church who are starting to move those ancient landmarks. And we need to be aware of that and understand what the landmark of interpreting the revealed law is. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 20, we read a little about it when Peter says that we ought to know that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. And he explains, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And notice there, he doesn't just say that holy men of God spoke. He says they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't their words. It wasn't their thoughts. The Spirit was using them as the pencil or as the pen that wrote the Bible, essentially. That's what inspiration is. It is theonoustos. It is God-breathed. He's speaking to us through these pages. They didn't get to choose the words. They didn't get to choose the thoughts. They didn't get to choose the content of Holy Scripture. That came from God. And that's what that word interpretation means in verse 20. It means origin. It means a loosening or unloosing. Where did it come from? It came from God. What was the meaning behind it? That comes from God too. That's what it's about. It's Him expressing His mind, His will to us. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 13, we read how that happened. That the Spirit combined spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Again, the New American Standard Bible renders it that way. I was talking to Bella this morning in our Bible class. We looked at this verse that sometimes you may have something you want to write down, especially when we're thinking about being in school and we're given a prompt to write a story or an essay. And you have your ideas, you have your thoughts, and then you get writer's block. How do I put it down? Well, God had his ideas, he had his thoughts, he had his law, he had his plan, and he knew the exact words to use, and he didn't want to use any other words. Not only are the thoughts of Scripture God's conveyed to us, but the very words in Scripture are his, which means we ought not alter any of it. It comes from him. And I think we need to understand that and certainly understand the fact that he revealed it to us in those specific ways so that we can understand exactly what he's trying to tell us. 
it's sad that we have to even talk about this and have a discussion about the fact that the revelation is so that we can understand what God wants us to know about him. He didn't reveal something to us so that we can be confused about it. He didn't reveal something to us that cannot be understood, but there are some even in the church who are claiming that it cannot be understood. And they talk about gray areas. There are some things that are black and white. There are some things that are easy to understand and, and some things that aren't understandable at all. They're just gray areas. They can't be understand. They might say that we can be unified, but there are certain passages and certain topics that we can't be unified on. Who's the arbiter that is going to make the distinction between those two general topics? What are the passages that can be understood and what are the passages that can't be understood alike? You might have heard it said that if we can understand it at all, we can understand it alike. You can't understand something differently than someone else, or else one of you doesn't understand it. Maybe both of you don't understand it. We understand that with regard to math. We know one plus one to be two, but if someone says, I understand one plus one to be three, they don't really understand it, do, do they? And they can't both understand it if they're understanding it differently. We know mathematical law is firm, so is God's law. We can certainly understand it, and if we can understand it, we can understand it alike. I even had someone come up to me one time when I was in Louisiana preaching, and it was a lesson on unity in the Spirit. Using passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, who they say, I am of Paul, of Paul, of Cephas, Christ, but Christ is not divided, and, and we make that point that we've got to be unified. Ephesians 4, unity in the Spirit. And we talk about different Topics like marriage, divorce, and remarriage, fellowship, life, everything from the most simple and basic principles to those things which are a little more difficult to understand, we might call meteor passages or subjects. And that person came up to me and said, I understand that we can be unified in matters like baptism and faith and the deity of Christ, but what about some things that are a little more difficult? Does God expect us or can we be unified in that? Certainly we can. God calls us to it. He calls us to understand not just the fundamental principles of Scripture, but all of Scripture because he revealed it to us so that we can understand. And in fact, he commands that we understand it. Ephesians 5 and verse 17 says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And if he tells us to understand, that's a command, then we had better believe that we can understand. And I want us to understand this, that when we say we can't understand the Bible at all, or we say we cannot come to a unified understanding of Scripture, Blame is placed on someone. Has to be. A lot of times we act as if we're humble saying the blame is placed on us. But I want to tell you, it doesn't matter what we say about why we can't understand it. The blame is always, one way or another, placed on God. If God did not reveal all his word in a way that is sufficient to be understood, that, that is, he didn't reveal it in a clear enough manner, then it's his fault, isn't it? He's not a very good author. But if he revealed it in a perfect way, perfectly understandable, but we are not sufficient in and of ourselves to understand it, he's also to blame because he created us and he didn't create us sufficiently enough. We can't get past that. God has blame placed upon him, but we're commanded to understand it. And Paul says we can. In Ephesians 3 and verse 3, he says that by revelation, God made known to him the mystery he had briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. There's the idea of understanding it, but not only understanding it, but understanding it alike. Paul's saying that even he had to come to an understanding of it. It was revealed to him. He didn't come up with it. 
But he says, now that I'm writing it to you, you can understand it how I understand it. You can gain my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. That's exactly what a revelation is. It's something unknown that is now made known. It's revealed. It is not understood because you don't see it, but now it is understood and you see it. In Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29, Moses writes that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Notice that we may do all the words of this law. If we do it, it's because we're understanding what we're supposed to do. In Isaiah 35, a kingdom prophecy is given to us about that place of holiness, about Zion. And it says in Isaiah 35 and verse 8 that the highway shall be there in a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. But notice this, whoever walks the road, although a fool shall not go astray. Saying that that's how clear the path is. It can be followed. You could put me in the wilderness and say that there is a path there to follow, but I don't know anything about tracking. So if it's too overgrown, if I'm supposed to be tracking an animal, I'm not going to be able to find it. I don't know that. I'm a fool when it comes to that. I'm simple in my mind when it comes to that. But this is what God is saying in this passage, that this highway of holiness is it's it's paved and it's scintillating. It's it's glimmering in the light and you can see it if you want to. Even the simple minded can see it. And they're not going to get lost on it if they truly want to follow it. It reminds me of what is said of the apostles in Acts 4 and verse 13 when they had healed the lame man and they were still speaking with boldness in front of the Sanhedrin council even though their lives were being threatened. In Acts 4 and verse 13 it says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. That's simple. That's the idea of fool in Isaiah 35. They're simple. They're uneducated. They're untrained. They marveled and realized they had been with Jesus. Where'd they get that wisdom from? They were uneducated, untrained. How did they understand the depths of God's knowledge? It's because they had been with Jesus and Jesus was with them. They submitted to the gospel. They understood God's word. The problem is, though, a desire that is within us may be lacking. And when we can't understand the scripture, if we never come to an understanding of that scripture, it's probably because we don't want to understand it. And this is what Jesus displays in Matthew, the 13th chapter, in regard to parables. He spoke the parable of the sower, among other parables, and not all were getting it. And the apostles had a question. Why are you speaking to them in parables? And why aren't you just telling them plainly and clearly? Why aren't you just putting them, putting it to them in, in the easiest way to understand? Not that it's not understandable. Why aren't you putting it in the easiest way to understand it? Maybe make a list for them. Write it down for them. Why are you speaking in parables? And he said this, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13, 11, but to them it has not been given. The Calvinists will say, see, they are not of the elect. They're not meant to know. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus goes on to explain what he meant by it has been given to you, but it has not been given to them. He quotes Isaiah in verse 14 and says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand Seeing you will see and not perceive. Why? For the hearts of this people have grown dull. It's a character flaw. It's a problem of honesty and dishonesty. Their ears are hard of hearing. Why? Because they've made them hard. Their eyes have closed. 
Notice there, they have closed them, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn that I should heal them. And notice this, he says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. We go back up to verses 10 and 11. We understand why they hear and why they see. It's because it's been given to them. But why? Verse 17, for assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear. That's because it was not revealed to them. Jesus is revealing it now. And he's saying you have that same desire and because I'm deciding to give it to you, you do hear it and understand it. You do see it and understand it. Matthew 7 and verse 7 shows that the desire is necessary. When Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. The key is our desire. The key is what we do desire. In James 1 and verse 6, he says, let him ask in faith for no doubting. For you doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In the context, speaking of asking God for wisdom, the man who asks in faith with no doubting is the man who wants to do what God's wisdom says. Some people ask God for guidance, but they already know what they're going to do, even if it's not according to God's law. He says in verse 21 of James 1 to receive that word with meekness. And that word meekness is a temper of spirit that accepts God's dealing with us as good and without disputing or resisting. Meaning, it doesn't matter what you say, God, I'm going to do it. So it certainly is revealed to understand. And we need to believe that in order to be pleasing to God. But I want to go a little further and say that not only is it revealed so that we can understand, but how we understand. How do we interpret the Bible? We don't get to decide that. God has decided that for us. And command or direct statement, example, and necessary inference is ultimately the blueprint of understanding. I want to preface this by saying it didn't come from me. It didn't come from any other man. It didn't come from the church of Christ. It came from Scripture. And there are examples of it in there. I've heard someone preach before that we forget this simple truth, that truth in and of itself we know is absolute, it's objective, but our understanding of it is relative. And that's simply a different way of saying that we can understand the Bible, but we can't always understand it alike. If truth itself is objective, then understanding of truth must also be objective. And the way in which we find that understanding, the way in which we find exactly what the truth means and what we're to do with it is by studying Scripture in these logical and scriptural ways. Command or direct statement. We see Jesus use all three of these. In Matthew, the fourth chapter, he's tempted by Satan. And he used command of God and direct statement of God to show Satan that I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. Remember, he was fasting in the wilderness and Satan commanded him to turn these stones to bread and he said it is written here is a direct statement of God man shall not live by bread alone but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God he tempted him again to fall down and worship him and then Jesus said to him it is written again a direct statement or here a command you shall not tempt the Lord your God because God commanded me not to do this and because God directly stated this and it contradicts what you're telling me to do, I'm not going to do it. That's how I interpreted that, Jesus is saying. And he interpreted it correctly within its context. You know, Jesus also taught and gave precept through his example. 
in John 13, he assumed the role and image of a servant, and he started to wash the disciples' feet. And they wondered what he was doing. He said, you don't know yet. I'll tell you in a minute. And he said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, John 13, 14, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And he was giving an example of service. We know good and well we are to serve one another. Matthew, the 22nd chapter, in his answer to the Sadducees, Jesus also used necessary inference. Something that God did not directly state, like our first concept, the commander direct statement, but he certainly implied it. And because logic shows us in the context that he implied it, we necessarily infer it, and we know that's what he meant. In Matthew 22 and verse 29, we know the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and Jesus shows them by necessary inference or necessary implication that there is a resurrection. He said in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, You are mistaken not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. They gave a hypothetical of a, of a woman who had seven husbands in, in the resurrection. Whose husband will, or wife will she be if there is indeed a resurrection? He said, you don't understand the power of God or the scriptures. Notice in verse 31, though, what he says. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Again, we go to God's word, but how is he using God's word? Have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And I want us to notice the reaction. When they heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. That's a scripture they knew good and well from Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush passage. They knew it by heart. He wasn't quoting it to them because they had not heard it. He said, have you not read? He knew they read it. But they were astonished that he had reached that conclusion from that passage. And now all of a sudden they're understanding it. They're amazed. If there is no resurrection, how did God say in Exodus 3, well after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died and passed away, Moses is on the scene now. How could he say, I am their God? It's because one, they're still somewhere. And even more importantly, two, If he's not God of the dead, then they have to be raised again to life. That's the implication. And Jesus infers it. There is a resurrection. These are matters that the Lord used himself. You can read a book like Hebrews that quotes the Old Testament myriad time and understand these principles are used by the Hebrew writer. He uses when God directly stated something or commanded something. He uses when there was examples in the Old Testament about what the Christ would be and what the new law would be, and he definitely uses necessary inference. It's certainly a scriptural principle. You know, some, though, disdain this approach. They talked about, they talk about systematic religion. We should, we should shy away from systematic religion. It becomes too much about the letter of the law and not enough about the spirit of the law. And certainly we should maintain a spirit and truth approach, but you can't have the truth without the spirit. You can't have the spirit without the truth. It goes hand in hand. And I want us to understand that this idea of a systematic approach to studying scripture is not a negative one. Very much is a system. A system of faith, we call it sometime. Remember in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13, Paul told Timothy to hold fast the pattern. Isn't that a system? Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 15, oftentimes the word tradition is thrown around in a negative way. And Jesus even threw it around in a negative way in Matthew 15. It's also used in a positive way. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. 
There are brethren who want to act as if we cannot approach Scripture with this idea of book, chapter, verse. With this idea of command, example, and necessary inference. We can't approach Scripture in such a systematic way. Going step by step to understand what God is communicating to us. Well, how are you going to approach Scripture? And we have these ideas of a new hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is the science of interpreting divine writing. And so this new way of interpreting it, when Jesus has already shown us exactly how we're to interpret it, that's the ancient landmark and we're not to move it. They have these these kind of gray approaches to interpreting Scripture. They talk about, well, you know, you may be saying that and that's what that passage says about this particular topic and you're saying it's error, you're saying that we need to avoid this sin, we're needing to avoid this kind of of teaching and and we see that what you're what you're doing and the point you're making but really you're getting too bogged down in this systematic approach and we need to just focus on grace i want to tell you focusing on grace is focusing on the pattern focusing on grace is focusing on precept focusing on grace is focusing on command example and necessary inference because titus 2 and verse 11 says the grace of god that appeared to all men teaches us to deny these things and live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. They talk about wanting to, instead of focus on the system of faith, focus on the finished work of Jesus. And there's a little bit of Calvinism coming into the church. We need to focus on what he did. And yeah, we need to focus on what he did, but he lived so that we can follow his steps. We focus on what he did so that we can now turn the focus on the applications we're making. And that finished work of Jesus was not as perfect life as a substitute. That's Calvinism, the substitution was his death. We still have to live our own life. You know, some say we need to focus less on the letter of the law and instead on, again, grace. And Romans 6 and verse 14 is often what they'll reference, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. And that is a figure of speech. It's a not but statement. He's saying you are not simply under law, but you are especially under grace. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, it speaks of the law of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says that I'm not without law, but I'm under law toward God. There's a law that we have to abide by. But thanks be to God that it's not a law without grace like the law of Moses, but it is a law with the grace under Christ. We still got to abide by the letter of the law. We've got to know what it says. You know, Jesus used this kind of approach to Scripture, book, chapter, and verse. Man, example, necessary inference. He five times said, have you not read? Twelve times. He says, is it not written? And about 45 other times he quoted the Old Testament to prove his point and to explain his doctrine. And the rest of the New Testament does it even more. We've got to interpret Scripture and approach Scripture by those ancient landmarks. And those are set by God. First Peter 3 and verse 15 tells us, to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And we can't do that without a book, chapter, and verse approach. This should affect our preaching and our teaching. First Peter 4 and verse 11 tells us, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. That means nothing more than what God has uttered and nothing less than what God has uttered. And that requires a book, chapter, verse approach. And some are moving those ancient landmarks of preaching only the oracles of God. Sometimes they do it by only preaching some of God's word. You know, someone may say, I don't understand what you're saying about this congregation or this preacher, that they're, 
there, there's not a place that we would want to go or be with or associated with or, or that congregation's not as strong because of the preaching. But, but he's not preaching any error. But is he preaching everything? Is he preaching on the issues? Is he preaching on sin? Is he making specific applications? And this is what Paul said to the Ephesians elders that we need to remember. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He's saying if I would have shied away from some of these hard things to hear and just given you what was easy to hear, I would be guilty of your spiritual blood. You'd be dead spiritually and it'd be my fault. Preaching error is certainly wrong, but not preaching all of God's word is just as wrong. What we need to do is expose all sin, expose all error. And not only that, but let me specify it. We've got to expose specific sin. Ephesians 5 and verses 11 through 13 speaks about us being children of light and that we are not to speak of those things, but we are to expose those things. We're to make manifest those matters. And you can't manifest sin by just saying that don't sin. Do good, don't do bad. That doesn't give us any kind of indication of what we're to pursue or avoid. We're supposed to point it out. An example would be the sin of lewdness or lasciviousness, like we see in different lists, like Galatians 5 in the New Testament. Okay, don't commit lewd acts. What are lewd acts? Lewdness is a really a general description that can include many specific things. We've got to be able to define what is lewd. It would include things like immodest dress. It would include things like dancing. Too many times congregations preach, don't do the bad, stay away from the bad but they don't tell us what the bad is. Same thing with error. Why do we preach doctrinal sermons, we might call them? Why do we give heed to, to sermons on institutionalism, sermons on once saved, always saved? We know those things. Why are we bothering with those things? We, we should just preach the truth, and the truth will take care of itself. But what we see in 1 John 4, 1 is the command to test every spirit, whether it is of God. We can't test whether it's of God unless we know what that spirit is. He's saying know the spirit, test what you know of the spirit in relation to and contrast to God's word and figure out whether it's true or whether it's error. A specific exposure of error. That's an ancient landmark. And when we start generalizing things, we're moving the ancient landmark. First Timothy 4 talks about an apostasy. You know what Paul does? He specifies some matters about that apostasy that he prophesies about. Speaks about people who are going to command to abstain from marriage. Talks about people who will teach you are to abstain from certain foods. That's pretty specific, isn't it? They would know the apostasy by those specific doctrines. We don't have enough time and it wasn't my point to look at these specific things, but we also need to maintain the ancient landmarks of applying those things. And this goes hand in hand with this preaching and teaching point, but we need to teach and preach about the work, worship, and organization of the church. You know, it's not as entertaining or it doesn't catch your attention as much to hear a good old-fashioned sermon on the work of the church, evangelism, edification, and benevolence to needy saints. But why do we need to do it? Because those are landmarks set by God. And too many people are moving them. Remember Deuteronomy 27, 17? Cursed is the one who moves that landmark. Worship. The five acts of worship that we see plainly and clearly in the New Testament, singing, preaching, 
praying, the giving that we have, the contribution, and the partaking of the Lord's Supper, why don't we do anything else? Because those are the landmarks set, and we ought not to move them. But we've got to preach on it. The organization of the church in regard to autonomy and the fact that elders and deacons are the design of God for the church and that the men are to be in the authority roles and not the women. That's not something men have made up. That's not a matter of men being women haters. That's a matter of God in creation establishing a landmark that the church is to submit to. What about moral issues in the church? You know, those are always a problem where human beings and Satan is tempting us continually. But who's going to make the laws? Who's going to make the rules? Who's going to draw the landmarks about morality for especially God's people when we live in a world that is inundated with immorality? How are we going to know what's right and what's wrong? God draws the line. God sets the landmarks. And so we know where the line is drawn for modesty. God has shown it to us. We know that it's wrong to drink alcohol. Social drinking is wrong. And some congregations will say that, well, it's kind of a gray area again. But it's a moral issue, isn't it? We want to know when people ask sincerely, what is wrong? How much can I drink? And the Bible tells us, don't even look on the wine. And so matters of morality are landmarks we've got to apply. We've ultimately got to study and come to know those things set by God. Another thing is fellowship. Where do we draw the line of fellowship? Who can we have fellowship with? And God clearly and plainly establishes those lines. And there are landmarks that people are moving. And we, especially at Elm Street, in this area, have the obligation and responsibility to be the pillar and ground of the truth, uphold those landmarks. We've got to be a congregation who understands that God gave us his word to understand. He told us how we're going to understand it, and he told us we've got to make the proper application. I want to encourage you to be back again this evening to hear the second part of this sermon, which will not look at ancient landmarks of the church, but ancient landmarks of society. We know those have been moved, right? God set landmarks, and he expects us to honor them and submit to them. If you're here this morning and have not obeyed the gospel, one ancient landmark that God has set 2,000 plus years ago is that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Some people try to murky the waters. They move that landmark a little forward, a little back, a little left, a little right, but it's very plain and clear that if you do not believe and you do not obey the one you believe by being baptized, you will not make it to heaven That will stand in judgment. We want you to be on the right side. And so we extend the invitation to you. If you have obeyed the gospel, but you have any spiritual need, we also can assist you with. The invitation is extended to you. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.